0: Visa's fintech fast track program is streamlining the onboarding process for fintechs, enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help fintechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials, and disbursement programs. To learn more, visit partner.visa.com. Welcome to Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Our once insular world of financial services is now a global phenomenon, and there is people everywhere opening up new markets and discovering new challenges like never before. In this new strand of FinTech Insider, every week we're taking a burning question from financial services across the globe and really putting it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels, and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus. See what we did there. Both 11FS and Visa are connected by this big picture, so in these Fintech Insider Focus shows we'll be using those burning questions to hone in on a particular market and opportunities across the two connected shows per month. This month, the question we're grappling with is can open finance ever be truly global? Before we get into answering that, let's step back a little bit and break down what we really mean by open finance. If we rewind back to 2018 and the European Union had just published Payment Services Directive 2, known as PSD2, which acts as a starting pistol for the push for open banking around the world. Through the use of open banking APIs and transparency options for account holders, open banking looked to break down the barriers between financial institutions of all sizes, as well as open the door to non-financial players too. Open Finance is the next step on that journey, taking all of your financial data, such as mortgages, savings, pensions, insurance, and consumer credit, essentially your entire financial footprint, and opening this up to trusted third parties via APIs. The end goal being consumers looking for financial products are being better served across the board, as there's a fuller picture of how they're paying for things, what they owe, their monthly budget, and much more. Different markets have taken different approaches when it comes to the implementation. While the EU pushed its directive from the top down, open banking was pushed from the bottom up in the US. And we've seen a billion dollar valuations for different companies on both sides of the Atlantic. But how far can open finance go? It's only just getting started, building on the momentum started by open banking. The term has quickly moved from a a buzzword at conferences to appearing in state-backed reports and VC pitch decks across the world. Whether that's the six banks offering open banking services in South Africa, regulatory sandboxes in Saudi Arabia, or open finance government initiatives in Brazil. So if everybody is doing this all over the globe, you would think it must be easy to link up all of these systems into a truly global system, right? Welcome to Fintech Insider Focus. Today, we want to take the conversation about global potential of open finance a little bit wider. We've put together a panel of experts to really dig into the question, can open finance ever be truly global? First off, we have my Fintech Insider Focus co-host for today, Dan Rosemary, Global Fintech Partnership
1: Lead at Visa. How's it going, Dan? I'm doing great. Thanks, David. Excited to be here and to kick off this series with the three of you.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a fun one, isn't it? I think with all of the things that are happening and uh, this subject particular out there, it's an amazing one. But I mean, this is something that is very close to your role at Visa. Tell us a little bit more about your role uh, and actually what this means to Visa as well.
1: Yeah, so my role in Visa, I sit within our digital partnerships organization. Um, My team gets to work with fintechs of really all shapes, sizes, stages around the world and help them navigate both. Visa's payments uh, ecosystem, as well as kind of broader financial services opportunities. Very cool. One of the coolest jobs I
0: imagine in the company, but uh, we won't put anybody else in Visa to shame just yet in that one then. But uh, speaking of fintechs of all shapes and sizes, we also have Andrew Norman, who is the senior engineering lead for UK and Europe over at Wise. How's it going, Andrew? Great to have you on the show. Yeah, good. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries at all. For anybody who's been living under a rock for the last 10 years, tell us a little bit more about WISE and what you guys do. Uh,
2: yeah, so WISE is the, uh, the global fintech that's uh, helping people move money all around the world. Uh, I look after our customers in the UK and Europe, um, so that, that includes a lot of work on, on open banking, uh, which is why I'm particularly interested in the topic. Very, very cool. Well,
0: fantastic to have you on. Um, next up, we have Matt West, who is the Vice President of Strategic Accounts and New Markets over at MX. Thanks for joining us, Matt. How's things?
3: Amazing. Thank you, David. Nice to be here.
0: Very cool. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know MX, uh, tell us what you guys do and uh, spread the love.
3: Yeah. Um, MX uh, headquartered in Utah, in the United States. Um we uh, do a lot of things, um, but uh, largely known for um, providing open banking software and infrastructure, amazing mobile experiences, uh, personal financial experiences, sort of handling both sides of the coin of open banking of both uh, being an intermediary and, uh, and also to, uh, to share that data with fintechs and banks and also to help provide the infrastructure to uh, those who are getting their data out in the market.
0: Very, very cool. A lot of great fintechs popping up over in Utah. There's a real hub building there, isn't there?
3: Yeah, Silicon Slopes, we call it.
0: (laughs) Very cool, very cool. Um, Before we dive in, uh, just a little reminder, listeners, the views and opinions on our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they represent. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. It's just going to get me into trouble if you follow my advice, I'll be honest with you. So do your own research. All right, And with that, let's get into it. So, uh, Dan, maybe starting with you. I mean, open finance is a a big topic, but it's a big topic for you guys at at Visa as well when it comes to everything
1: that we're setting out for for 2023. Um, Tell us a little bit more about why that is. One of our missions is to connect the world in order to enable really individuals, businesses and economies to thrive. We think data is going to play kind of a massive and ever-increasing role as financial services and payments evolve. One of the things that tends to happen when people talk big data, open banking, open finance, kind of that topics and technologies like AI and ML tend to take up a lot of the air in the room. But one of the kind of secrets or kind of what's more underlying and what we think is actually more critical is the power of bringing more data and more diverse data sets into those AI and ML models and that really, I mean, it's, it's, it comes down to the old adage of kind of bad data in, bad data out, and vice versa. Um, so what we'd like to see and some of the trends we're really excited about is technology, even open standards, regulations, starting to shift towards a more open ecosystem, towards a broader set of data, whether it's payroll for um, or employment verification for consumers whether it's small business data, such as their accounting software, um, feeding into models and decisioning from financial institutions, fintechs, or other providers. So we're really excited about that trend. We think it has the potential to create a more inclusionary global financial ecosystem and to unlock, honestly, smarter financial services and some new use cases that could be really interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a fascinating one, isn't it? As you say, the the richer, the better. The data, the the better decisions, the better services can really be delivered. And I, I mean, I, I guess for for, for you, Matt. I, I mean, we've we've talked. I mean, even in I think in my introduction, I think I use these words interchangeably. But you know, open banking, open finance, you know, the opening up of all of these different things. I mean, these things all for anybody who's listening to this, who's who's new to the subject matter, are these all the same things, or is this something different?
3: You know, the way I think about it is, you know, you have data that comes from banks, right? And I could just simply classify that as open banking. And you think about open finance being sort of like any other financial data, right? That's that's just this most simple way to think about it. Um, so banks think about accounts and transactions and data associated with users that banks hold and possess, account uh, information being really key, right, to enable money movement today. And then in open, the world of open finance, think about, you know, payroll, Think about your bills and utilities, and you know, think about the places where you spend money, and potentially having that data be more open in the future. I think that open finance is going to take a lot longer because the incentives are different. You know, for merchants, for you know, utility companies and telecom companies to open up that data and make it accessible. But you know, as we see more adoption of that data, a um, sort more ob- adoption of the exposure of that data, rather, it'll open up many, many more use cases and much more personalization for, for consumers. And you know, I don't, I don't think we even understand yet what the open finance data is going to do for consumers. I think it's going to drastically change their experiences with their money. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think uh, banks especially are prepared for what it will mean when that data is available and accessible.
0: Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, isn't it? I think um, every bank I've worked with on the planet has a a very large single view of customer program un- underway, you know. And if you start sort of opening up Aladdin's cave of data for everything else that goes with that as well, it's. I think the word that you used there was personalization, and actually, you know, the the world we live in really, when it comes to financial services right now, is is kind of moved towards self service, hasn't it? But actually, the idea of you know data facilitating a kind of a one-to-one experience. So really that was the, you know, was the promise of the internet, wasn't it? In terms of that being the, the way in which we would interact with, uh, with services in that sense. But uh, Andrew, I know this is something that uh, obviously in your role, but wise more broadly, this is something that you guys are, are really pursuing. And I imagine with a global view, you're seeing real differences between, you know, open banking in the UK and, and what is considered open banking in different geos as well. So how, how do you sort of see the difference?
2: Yeah, there, there is difference between, uh, what some of the different regulators are pushing, um, like in Australia, there's the, um, they've got open banking at the moment, but it's really just data at the moment, no payment initialization. Um, yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing some differences between, you know, the UK and Europe, uh, like we're, we're looking forward to, to premium, premium services with open banking, uh, hopefully coming around this year with, uh, Uh, in Europe. So similar to VRPs that we've got in, in the UK. Um, yeah, there is a lot of differences. It would be fantastic to see, see more standardization. Uh, but at the moment, we're not really seeing a lot of standardization, even within Europe itself. Um, even, even within the UK, there's a lot of differences between, between how open banking is kind of implemented with the different, uh, payment service providers. So I, I think before we really kind of see it, Kind of go go more global and and uh, it'd be great to see more standardization and really really kind of uh, align between some of those regulators that I think think that would
1: really open up a lot of opportunities. Andrew, how are you thinking about personalization just kind of sticking on that personalization topic? Um, I, I think the way we've kind of talked about it recently is really when you think about an individual or a business of any any size, they they each have their own individual. I kind of financial wellness call it score and attributes um, as well as risk profile so how do you think about I know you serve the kind of consumers and businesses how are you thinking about kind of a more tailored approach maybe leveraging some open finance or or data
2: yeah so I mean we use open banking data for for some of our um, some of our risk profiling um, but I think I think what we we really wanna see with open finance is, uh, is comparison data really kind of take off. It would be absolutely fantastic if open finance could include more information about products, um, could include uh, like with, with customer data, as you say, like you can use that to, to get quotes, to get real comparisons between different providers. Um, and so that, that would, I think that would be huge. And we'd really love to see that kind of kick off. Um, and, and when
0: you say comparator data I mean that can be comparison of spends but it could be comparison to other individuals as well because the you know I think the going beyond the pie chart uh, in terms of uh, being able to reflect back what people have done but but really being able to show that in the context because I'll be honest like we all work in financial services but I don't know if I'm doing well or not you know and actually the, the idea of being able to understand what you know Stacy down the road is spending on her broadband or actually whether my savings are sensible for a dang I'm 42 now a 42 year old you know like actually is that is that good like I've no idea so it feels like actually this data can really put some context to to people's individual understanding of what those things are. But but it feels like we've got a long way to go. I mean, Andrew, you touched on regulation and the part that the regulator plays in this. And I mean, Dan, you know, Visa operates globally in terms of your your remit. It must be really quite difficult, I guess, with different regulators doing different things and pushing in slightly different directions to you don't have the same Lego blocks in every geo, which makes it difficult, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I actually see regulation as a critical component here, and we've been encouraged in the the steps we've seen really around the around the globe. I think a lot of it started in Europe, has made its way over to North America. We're starting to see other kind of regions shift in a similar direction, at least towards open banking, if not a broader open finance stance. Um, for this, this becomes about breaking down data silos as much as it becomes about kind of normalizing new data sets, such as some of those alternative data sources we talked about. So even, even thinking about kind of, a, let's say Matt has a bank account. He's had the same bank for 20 years. His data is in there. I think it's really important um, for Matt to show that kind of financial wellness and kind of for other providers to assess his risk and his goals for that data silo to kind of be broken down or permissioned by Matt within his control and, I think regulators are going to have to have a big a big role in that. We're excited by the progress and we'll remain optimistic and and here to help as much as we can.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? that balance that balance there between not being able to do something because you can't get access to the data, and then the data only being accessible when the regulator has mandated that it's exposed. There's a there's an interesting sort of balancing act between those two. But um, sorry to cut across you, Matt. Go ahead.
3: No, no, no. Just gonna add an observation of what Dan was saying. Just, you know, thinking about the different global markets and how, um, you know, you have some regulatory led markets and you have some more market market led changes happening, right? Like, the U.S. has largely been market driven, and I think that's been interesting to watch. I in Canada, you hear a lot more, uh, a lot of waiting, really, for government regulation to come down to say this is what we're going to do, and of course, you have PSD two in in the UK. Um, I don't have a lot to a lot of insight on what's going on in Europe, but I'd love to learn more about that. But I, I guess the big questions you wait for is one like who who owns the data, right? That's a that's a key I think thing just to understand here, right? Is you think of who are all the stewards of the data and and having that information be be passed through the chain, and um, and what's required, right, for each steward of the data in terms of data security and infrastructure, and then. And then you also think about what data elements must be exposed, right? And if, um, if some data elements need, need to be, exp- like different data elements would expose different amounts of competition and different, different things that are really key. Like you just think about this one, credit card interest rates, right? Like that is, interest rate is a key thing that financial institutions and FinTechs that offer cards compete upon, right? And so if that data is mandated by government that it needs to be shared, that changes the competitive landscape drastically. Just that one piece, right? You also think about, um, you know, other other data elements. I, I, that's a great example. We can stop at that one. But, like, that's that's an interesting thing that the government regulation can have impact on, right? Like, who owns the data and, and what data elements do get shared? And then you also open up and think, okay, what about outside of just banks and regulating banks? And think, okay, what about open finance and having... Other sort of uh, industry players and in different industries having that data be regulated to be exposed, and it's um it's really interesting when you start to think about all those use cases and you know just the holy grail you know to just throw the ball way down the field and say what would happen when SKU data if that was regulated to be available I mean that changes everything you know and um, I don't know when that will happen or if that will ever happen but um, if that does that that is a global game changer, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Just a a double click slightly on the the interest rate one, because actually, I mean, that would fundamentally change, you know, savings products, lending products, business case, really. You know, actually, if you look at, I mean, if you had APR plus when teaser rates expired, actually, you could create whole services to ensure that people were always on the best rate. And, And the challenge there would be, would that be a service that would be, able to be provided by the financial services institutions or would that be something that would be provided by uh, a an, an you know a third party an intermediary that was uh, looking at your data in order to make those things happen because it, it's an interesting one isn't it the the fundamental building blocks of the the business models of financial services would be would be threatened but, you know retail we're talking about retail banking here but retail and sme predominantly um by those changes which which would be really exciting, wouldn't it? But on the other hand, if you're a big financial institution who's maybe making a lot of money off um, uh, overdraft fees, as a, as a good example, then then that's a pretty scary thing to kind of let go of that control. So, I mean, this, this could be transformative for the industry if it, if it goes to that, that extent, Matt. You know, it's a, it's a big change.
1: Well, one thing I want to build on the, the, the interest rate, especially just to, I guess we'll rabbit hole in this topic. Um, think about how that works today, right? So if a consumer wants to seek out a lower interest rate, they're talking to the financial service or they're maybe finding it some sort of debt consolidation solution. Um, but think about if if this, is, if this can be shared on a broader, call it regulated or at least open standard basis, then a lot of those services can find consumers versus consumers having to seek them out. A lot of consumers maybe lack uh, access or education or even time and convenience to go find those better solutions for them. And then even if you're within an existing uh, financial institution, let's say you have, you have a credit card APR, why couldn't that be dynamic based on your spend patterns or your, if your salary goes up um, from your employer then maybe that changes the risk profile and that could push a lower rate down
0: yeah it's, it's fascinating isn't it what we're what we're seeing with this is almost the ability to you know autopilot your financial services at that point aren't you you know we're we're sort of seeing if people have the time or the inclination or the education they can do these things it's not it's not beyond the will of uh, of a human to, to to make those things happen but but really, like financial service, it, I, I always kind of say this is like look, us for kind of geeks for this stuff. But normal people don't care, you know what I mean? Like they want the they want the stuff. Like they want to be able to kind of live their lives and go about everyday day life. Therefore you know, automating this this life, automating this grudge, really is what this data can fundamentally facilitate. Because, I mean, I think we're all agreeing on I don't think the technology is beyond the will of man when it comes to facilitating, you know, the algorithms exist to make these things happen. I don't think, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong here, from a technological perspective, but I don't feel like there's anything that actually couldn't happen if you could get access to the real-time data to make these things happen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I- S- similar, similar examples with, uh, you know, fees on, on foreign exchange rates, right? We run a, we run a comparison site at, at WISE where we, we pull a lot of this data. And it's very hard to get these days because banks do make it difficult. They, they don't make it transparent. They make it hard to get that information. There's no standardization. Um, I, I think that the two, the two key things here are consistency and, and availability. That, that's what we want to see out of these these APIs. Um, like today I wouldn't necessarily trust open banking if I was, you know, at a, uh, you know, standing at a a registry trying to, uh, buy groceries or something, I wouldn't necessarily trust it was available. Um, that's the kind of availability we need that we know that, that, uh, you know, this information is there. We know, uh, you know, it's consistent. Um, that's, that's how we really, really make use of, of this data.
1: And I would say real-time and interconnectivity, right? So that comes down to kind of the, the standards and interoperability. Um, because otherwise you're you're looking at kind of each company connecting to each other through APIs, and that's a long, a long path.
0: It's um it's fascinating. I always kind of think at these sort of inflection points, it's always sensible to look at sort of almost other industries. And actually, if you look at things like the advancement that we've seen in IoT and uh, home automation, Actually, there was three or four companies doing amazing things, and and that was great, but suddenly my Amazon devices don't speak to my Apple devices, That they don't speak to my Google devices. And then actually what it requires is a real consolidated effort to create singular standards and interoperability, as you say it to to allow really smart things to kind of happen so it kind of feels like we're on that whether globally whether it's through the regulator and a you know the the stick to make it happen or the the market finding that actually there is a a real opportunity here uh the carrot that actually means that they can go and make something more interesting happen for their business it does feel like we're at that inflection point in uh in the industry so i mean andrew you talked about the 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 sort of hurdle the 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 barrier to adoption is it as simple as just standards for interoperability or, or is there a a broader hurdle to get over when it comes to to adoption of this because this isn't just build it and they will come right we've got to we've got to have the real use cases that actually make customers care
2: absolutely uh, I think it was um, Matt's point about having uh, the market pushing this and regulation pushing it I think this is one of those cases where we need both to happen. Um, like certainly like availability and consistency, standardization is really important, but I think, um, I'd, I'd really like to see more payment service providers, uh, kind of think of it as a feature that they're giving their, their customers, you know, the ability to, to export their data, uh, enables their customers. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that's really useful for their customers and they should, they should want to do it in the best possible way. And you, you do actually see that with some, uh, some UK banks, there are some that have done it really well and provide like seamless customer experiences. Uh, and it's, it's fantastic. And there are others that have done it quite badly. Um, I think, I think not only do we want, you know, the, the standardization better API, but I think we, we kind of need to advertise this a little bit better. It needs to become more of a, a household name. I don't know whether open banking or open finance is the the best words for it, but uh, it, it, I'd love to see it one day be something that, that customers, uh, you know, compare their banks and go, oh, you know, their financial institutions and go, this is the one that does a better job of this. And that's that's partly why I'm going to pick it. Yeah. It's interesting,
0: isn't it? In a world of standardization, we there is a sort of an element of caution there to a certain degree. I mean, obviously, uh, for anybody, international, UK market, comparison websites took over, like insurance, particularly credit card industry, mortgages as well. And actually the quantitative features of financial products uh, are only really part of the the service that you get as an entirety. So we've got to be careful that we don't really just get into a downward spiral of low rates and you know hidden fees and in that way that we did with car insurance and van insurance and all sorts of stuff but but it is an interesting one when you can truly compare apples for apples then actually you really get a true view of where you are but Matt Matt what do you think is this um is this one of the the sort of big hurdles is it is it purely a technological hurdle or is there a kind of a broader context
3: yeah I mean um, I look like to Andrew is the technologist in the room right um, for a lot of this but um, my my take, and I see you know in the U.S. we have the benefit of, of FDX right to provide standards. I think that it's had great adoption. It's what MX uses in our infrastructure um, to to provide our MX access technology. And um, you know when you when you think about the global question, it becomes way more complicated, right? Um, to provide standards that you know you'll have major markets uh, you know utilize and and thus adopt and and you know, and then you think about how just open banking breaks apart, right? You have those who provide their data, right? They're the ones who need to adopt the standards first and say, this is the standard we're going to use. We're all going to use it. And then you have those who are going to access it, or you have intermediaries. You could have direct accessors and you have intermediaries. Everybody needs to sort of play nice and say, we want to use the same standards. You don't necessarily need to have a global standard. Like I I think that that would be, that'd be awesome. It's, it's probably like, too much of a waterfall mentality for, you know, things are changing too quickly and you have too many things popping up around the globe. Um, and you have probably different needs, you know, in say Africa versus, you know, EMEA and South America, right? And um, then you have language barriers, right? And, you know, multi-currency, uh, you know, it complicates things as well, documentation, you know, all these things are complicated. You also don't have a centralized body saying, I'm gonna create a global standard for the whole world to use but you do have models that you can base it off of, right? Um, I'm a huge fan of FTX uh, in the US. Um, I think that it's a great model that uh, could be copied. You know, these these uh, documentation and the APIs are are accessible for people to to use and to copy essentially and say, I'm going to build off of that and have it be, you know, FTX-esque, right? And, um, you know, I think that, that's probably the biggest challenge, right, to get adoption globally and have a global utilization of open banking, open finance is, is just standardization, you know, like every market's got to land on a standard. I, I believe that pretty firmly um, for it to be ubiquitous.
0: Yeah. I, I guess uh, at the end of the day, at least, uh, you know, I completely agree with you. Uh, we can't agree which side of the road to drive on or the shape of our plugs, right? So actually getting the idea that a global standard for financial services is going to be pretty difficult, isn't it? But but at least at the end of the day, we are talking about machines talking to machines, and APIs are a pretty standard when it comes to, you know, allowing those interfaces to actually talk to each other. It's just what level of data. And I guess, you know, Dan, to, to sort of round out from the top of the show, really, Having the data is only part of the problem, isn't it? Really, you know, we—I think Andrew uh, referenced VRPs earlier on, but going beyond just showing somebody some information and actually doing something with that, I, I feel that has to be the the step that we need to take to to really turn this from uh, interesting insights into action that fundamentally changes people's lives.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And let's say that we solve and and Matt, just to build on your point first. I think, I, I don't know that everyone, like, you're going to get all these players in a room to agree on the standard. I think you're going to have a couple solutions that emerge and kind of take a leading role through, honestly, just through success and probably sheer willpower. And then that'll be a model for the rest of the world. And you start to kind of just aggregate around what becomes standards eventually. Um, but yeah, David, to your question, I think... Even if, as we start to see that these data sources like broader data sets, kind of AI, ML, which I think are still in their infancy stages of adoption, uh, let's say all of those things land tomorrow with all the financial service providers out there, Um, you still need to drive awareness to consumers that, hey, now you can do X, Y, and Z with these things. Now, Mr. Small Business Owner, your application for that loan that you need to go open that second location, is not going to take you six weeks and all this paperwork that you're never going to have time to. It really could be as simple as, Hey, click these few buttons to permission your data sets. We'll do everything behind the scenes. You'll have a yes or no or some options to you in a matter of ideally minutes. Um, so driving that awareness will be kind of that, that last step. And hopefully some of these solutions emerge along the way and start to educate consumers. I think even with open banking, like the, uh, the initial. Um, there was an initial reservation for consumers to do their user ID and and password, their banking login with various fintech or other providers. And that adoption curve has kind of ticked up over a period of time as you build trust.
0: Yeah. Ask somebody for some random data without a good reason for doing it. People don't do it like you, who would have thought it, but uh, give them a good reason for, for kind of sharing it and um, people will, will do it in that, in that way. So I I guess looking forward here, um, what happens next? I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, bizarrely seeing you know big banks in Africa adopting UK standards where we're seeing you know mass change even though the regulator isn't saying to in countries that you just wouldn't have thought it so I mean what are the next five years look like for open finance are we are we going to go beyond that pie chart into real action and maybe Andrew starting with you what where do you think we're going
2: to get to? Uh, well, I mean, some of the things we're looking forward to this year uh, the uh, the SEPA payments account access scheme, which I mentioned before, so premium services in Europe, uh, which hopefully will include things like variable recurring payments. Um, we're hoping, uh, well, we believe that EU policymakers are going to make instant payments in on SEPA mandatory, uh, hopefully this year, and that that would be huge. That um, would be a really big step forward for open banking and, and banking in Europe in general. Um, you know, this PSD three uh, if that's what it's going to be, like, uh, it'd be great to see, uh, you know, that kind of being finalized or some, some more information about that. Um, I, I think there's lots of, like, uh, I think there's a lot of momentum and I think, uh, I think we're going in the right direction. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, um, what, yeah, what regulators do to improve from open banking. Have we learned the lessons? Cause there's a lot of lessons from open banking. Have we learned those and are we going to improve on them as we go on? Um, but yeah, I, th- I think as as Matt and Dan have both been saying, there's tons that can be done with this data, and it'll be interesting to see what new innovation will come from this. Um, hey
1: Andrew, are there any technologies around the corner? Thinking kind of five or maybe further out. Um, do you think this is just more adoption of kind of AI ML, or are there like are there other technologies you're excited about that could help?
2: Um, hard hard to answer that one. Uh, I I think. I think there's a lot that you know uh, AI and, and machine learning can do with this data. Um, I don't think we've really exhausted what those those tech can do with with finance. So uh, I think I think they will make a big impact for sure over the next the next five years. Very very cool, Matt. What do you think?
0: What, where are we going next? What does the what does the future look like when it comes to open finance?
1: That's
3: such a big broad question, David. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I I think there's so much like foundational work to do still. I think open banking is going to going to, you know, come first. Open finance will, you know, ramp up, you know, and come second. Um, I still think we're in the phase where there's so much work to be done just to get data out there to have adoption occur. I mean, you know, both the space Andrew and, and MX operate in like providing this infrastructure so that those who are getting their data in the market that's got to be adopted, right? I mean, think about that problem just for one second. You have banks saying, hey, we want to get our data out on in the market. Like, all the things that are required to do that, you have to have, one, the technology, like a centralized system to have their data manage that access, and the APIs to connect into their systems to put data into that centralized system. You have to create agreements between the banks and those who are going to be accessing the data, whether they're aggregators or maybe large fintechs, potentially. That takes a lot of time. Um, and, and, or you have banks say, I'm just going to build this all in house. And that's only going to happen at the largest financial institutions. So let's just, that's a huge thing. I just, I think we have to acknowledge, right. That there's still so much adoption that has to happen, but let's just say adoption has occurred and the data is flowing. Um, I, I think the inevitable thing here is that, um, those recipients of data will, will chase the revenue that comes from that information. So, this, this data flowing out, obviously governed by these agreements that, that are there, all this information is gonna find its way into, into marketing systems, right? That are, that are intended to um, create offers, right? Get someone to buy something and get someone to make a change and get, you know, have that competitive edge. Um, I think that there's a lot of examples of that happening, you know, um, in, in other totally different markets, totally different um, sort of scenarios, but I definitely resonate with the AI ML utilization of this data. I think that for a while, we're going to continue to be underwhelmed by what happens on the banking side and not see banks do all that much with that data. But in the coming years, it will get better and better. As adoption gets better, they know what to do with that information. I mean, financial institutions sat on a mountain of data for well over a decade and have not done that much with it, most of them at least. And um, we'll see fintechs. Learn to do, uh, be scrappier, and do a lot more with that information. They're ultimately the recipients of the data. Now that's 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 sort of my take on the on the big broad question. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah,
0: no, I think it's super interesting. I mean, the the old uh, saying, "Marketeers ruin everything," right? There's uh, there's going to be a lot of ads going out there at some point, but uh, hopefully, we get to a point where it's personalization of not just advertisement, but uh, but services that go with it. So maybe to to close this out then, Dan, what, what do you think? You know, next five years? I mean, it, it feels like there's a, a lot of road to go in, in open finance more broadly.
1: Yeah, I think we're already down the road. Um, I think open banking got the ball rolling downhill. We're seeing a lot of momentum, um, whether it's investment, uh, startups popping up, or um, even solution providers that are aggregating some of these third-party data sources as well as movement from the regulators, as, as Andrew and others talked about, um, where we are really excited about kind of even the next two to three years, and then looking at kind of five to 10 years out, the opportunity to not only kind of tailor financial services to consumers and businesses that have access today, but to open access for the first time is about 1.7 billion unbanked um, consumers out there, for example, um, where we think a lot of these. Alternative data sources and technology can help de-risk the model for whether it's fintechs or financial services providers um, to start to offer them uh, financial service products for the first time, as well as even just access to the digital economy through payment products and other services.
0: Fascinating. It's, it's going to be a, a really interesting one. The sophistication is going to be amazing in terms of what we can do. And and hopefully out of all of this, the customer comes out a, a lot better off and, uh, in all of that as well. So unfortunately, we are running out of time. So that does wrap up this edition of FinTech Inside of Focus brought to you in association with Visa. Thank you so much to the panel for joining me. Where can people find a little bit more about you and your companies? Andrew, starting with you.
2: Uh, Thanks, David. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, You can also find more about WISE on wise.com. And we also have our open roles on wise.jobs if you're looking for a new job or a new challenge in 2023. Very good. Always hiring, always
0: hiring. Nice. Uh, Matt, uh, how about you? Where can people find a little bit more about you and all the good stuff that you're up to?
3: Yep, I'm very LinkedIn heavy. Uh, Feel free to find me there. Um, And you can learn more about MX at mx.com.
0: Very good. Dan, they can find us here, can't they? But uh, as for what you do for a day job, then uh, where can they find a little bit more about you and
1: the good work you're up to at Visa? Absolutely. Uh, LinkedIn works. um, And then you can actually find uh, information about some of the things we're up to in fintech and our our partnership programs. So partner.visa.com is where I would start.
0: Very, very good. Uh, You can always, like Matt, find me lurking on LinkedIn. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It super duper helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. For more on this discussion, look out for the next episode of Fintech Insider Focus
2: in two weeks' time. Thank you very much, everybody. Goodbye.